Ever wonder if there was an easy cure for anxiety, a non-stressful way to sustain intimacy, increase longevity, innovation, and adaptability? Where there's a simple four-letter word that helps with stress management, personal resiliency, diminishment of depression, it's play. And today on That Got Me Thinking, we'll be talking all about it. Join us. Cold blood is with the Stromsky. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss the straws. I'm at a loss. How my brains get busted. Slinging letters into couplets. Muck up the subject. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. And I've been thinking about play. What it is, why we do it, why some people seem better at it than others, how we lose it, and how we get it back into our lives. My guest today is Dr. Stuart Brown. By trade, he's a physician, psychiatrist, and clinical researcher and founder of the National Institute for Play. As messenger, he is the author of Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul, and TED Talk presenter of Play is More Than Just Fun. From any angle, he's a pioneer illuminating the intrinsic and unparalleled value of play. Welcome, Dr. Brown, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Pleasure to be with you, Ellie, my favorite subject. I, I want to start with something you said at the end of your book, that play is a hugely complex and controversial subject. What about it, we'll get to the complexity, but what about it makes it controversial? I think it's the cultural history that in certainly in highly productive, every moment has to count Western civilization and to some degree our Judeo-Christian heritage that uh, uh, an idle mind is a devil's workshop uh, has established a kind of a cultural envelope around play that makes it trivial or something for kids or something that is uh, should be relegated uh, only to that part of life after you've taken care of the mortgage and put the garbage out and made the beds and and uh, had enough savings to uh, live into your, well into your retirement. None of these uh, so-called necessities of life appear to include play. And I think that's a, with the science behind play and the uh, flood of information that now is available about play behavior and its significance, I think those attitudes are outdated, wrong, and to some degree a public health menace. And I was thinking too that just from my conversation we were having a little bit before we got started, the idea of shame around that that gets connected with it then, that if you haven't done everything else and you haven't got taken care of all other important business, that then there could be some shame around um, playing and feeling of sort of not being a responsible person or not, not being uh, motivated enough or all sorts of things that one could attach to their, their mindset while they're playing. Very true. I think both guilt and shame, uh, for adults at least, uh, often is associated with when they're doing uh, something that doesn't have any obvious purpose just because it's fun. You know, that often is not a sufficient reason to feel good about what you're doing, even though doing it makes you feel good. So let's talk a little bit about your path to studying play. You were a pioneer in this area. What led you to begin this research? Well, that's kind of a long story, but I was a somewhat overworked young professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine 
when a young man uh, went up on the top of the Texas Tower. He was an Eagle Scout, an architectural engineering student with no known history of violence. He took an armory up to the top of the Texas Tower. After killing his wife and mother, he then murdered 14 people, wounded 32 before he himself was mowed down by an off-duty policeman and a volunteer vigilante. And because I'd done some work in violence during the course of my formal training, my boss and the governor of Texas put me in charge of trying to figure out why this young man who was deceased at that point, name was Charles Whitman, did what he did. So we had unlimited funds and unlimited access to experts from, that were worldwide, including a very detailed physical review of all of his brain and body. And at the end of a very intensive review, uh, which included going back into his home for three generations, looking at his family history. But anyway, without going through this whole long story, one of the main findings was that the young Charles Whitman had had play suppressed systematically by a very overbearing father, and that that systematic play suppression persisted up to and including uh, his gaining adulthood. He was 25 years old. So our commission felt that this was a significant lack in his developmental life that made him more vulnerable to his aggressive impulses. Well, one mass murder does not uh, a whole story make. Thereafter, go ahead. No, I was going to say it might, might not, but it certainly will plant a large enough seed to get someone like you to start thinking about it and digging a little deeper. Well, and, and we had a couple of real, really marvelous uh, developmental child psychiatrists who said, oh, if he played here, he might have had a different life. If he played there, he might have had a different life. So it caught my attention, but I didn't really give it much uh, room until after I had spent a year part-time in the Texas prison system systematically interviewing young homicidal males whose only act that got them into prison was murder. And we compared them and matched them with a very large study that was going on in the state of Texas with people who were in similar economic and life circumstances and did... Uh, review of their lives, both the matched people and the murderers, and lo and behold, the play behavior which we investigated was vastly different and deficient and abnormal in the murderers as compared to the matched controls. So I think that's what, from kind of a scientific point of view, really alerted me, well, what's going on here? What is What does play do in terms of violence? So that was my original kind of stimulus that got me into this, and that's many, many years ago. We're talking almost 50 years now. And uh, in the ensuing many, many years, and each patient I saw uh, while I was in clinical practice, and I supervised a large number of residents and psychology pre- and postdoctoral students, each of them, when they saw a new patient, I had them do a, a equivalent of a detailed play review. So one begins over the years to see the 
contributions of play and some of the consequences of severe play deficiency. Now, obviously, not everyone who is play deficient is going to be a murderer, but the the benefits of a play-saturated, healthy play life are huge, and the consequences of really serious play deficiencies are also significant. So it's that long trajectory of which I'm still uh, enjoying that has uh, stimulated me to really take a look at play behavior and all the aspects I could and to seek out play scholars and and uh, highly playful people. I've interviewed 14 Nobel laureates, for example, and done their play reviews. And in the process of seeing fulfilled, empowered people, the contributions of play behavior are very real. So one of the things you mentioned in your book when you were discussing that story of the shooter was that something that he didn't learn because he hadn't played was the ability to make choices, that in any circumstance, you have lots of choices to make. What are some right. of the other um, things that we learn similar to that through play? Well, let's take uh, an example of uh, having a freedom to choose what is intrinsically joyful for yourself and not something your parents want you to do or something that's just innately there because you love it. And... Uh, in looking at Whitman's life and in taking all these reviews, what I find is that those individuals who have been able to be gleeful in their choices, let's say it's a little seven- or eight-month-old baby, and uh, that baby has more fun grabbing toys, fuzzy toys, than in socializing with his mom or his sibling, and that uh, young gleeful little baby may end up being a tinkerer and an engineer, which would be following his bliss and following his own little play nature. And so becoming, having those choices that are one's own uh, are really, really significant. And if you follow the developmental trajectory of an individual's play patterns, and let's say they get on a playground and they're engaged in rough and tumble play, chasing, escaping, wrestling, punching, squealing, all the things that little kids preschool and early elementary school do innately. What you learn from those kinds of highly complex play experiences, which are non-lethal and don't have a consequence at the moment, beyond the moment, but what one learns is how to handle these very complicated social choices kind of from within yourself. And without that play experience, you're not as skilled. So that's that's kind of a riff on a little bit of what play, good play behavior offers from within uh, all of us. What are our deep, intrinsic, gleefully driven motivations that are at their core play-based? So what are the defining characteristics of play? I was thinking about the difference between um, play versus fun and what unique environment does play provide and, and how is it, what are the actual characteristics? Oh, I think there, you know, it's, it's, you can observe a, like a puppy chasing all over two puppies on a field 
and you'll see what they're doing is for its own sake. It's voluntary. It's triggered from within. It appears purposeless at the time. It uh, creates a heightened mood because it's fun. It's joyful generally. It's deeply engaging. The aspect of performance, the outcome of the activity, or even if it's mental, the outcome is less important than the experience itself. And it kind of uh, removes one from the pressure of time. So those are some of the defining characteristics of play itself. And I think the, the element that I like about it is that it's spontaneously, deeply engaging. You know, you're really focused on the on what you're doing and or what you're experiencing, and that that experience comes from within yourself as and is satisfying and pleasurable. I know you made a distinction between play as a state of mind rather than a series of behaviors. No, I I think this is really a kind of a core concept that's not gotten across. Uh, to the public in, in general about play. Because most people will ask you, well, should I play Monopoly as a board game or, or you know, should I go for a hike? And they, they're thinking of it in terms of a specific activity. And I like to think of it, and I think this has got some real scientific uh, basis for it. I like to think of it as a kind of a separate state of being, as separate from all others as our sleeping and dreaming. We all know if we fall into sleep or we have dreams that this is a kind of a separate biological state that we can see in animals and in humans and varies with the age and has uh, much different profiles. And play is very, very similar if you think about the big picture to that. There are play in the animal world is you see it in dolphins, you see it in elephants, you see it in, in smart birds, and it is uh, a separate state in each of those animals. And if you move up the kind of the more complex animal line and look at uh, chimpanzees and bonobos and, and uh, social mammals that are highly playful, you see patterns that are also uh, indicate a kind of a separate state of being. And I think it's easier to see this in little kids than in adults who are culturally and linguistically and cognitively more complicated. But it nonetheless, when you are fully in, engaged in your own personal play state, it is a separate state of being. And neurologically as well, right? You can now with brain yeah. mapping see that the area of the brain that lights up is similar to those in the sleep state where there is a lot of um, coalescing and um, yeah. connections being fired. Yeah, I would say that scientifically the, the neural study of play today is where the study of sleep was 60 or 70 years ago. And it's, uh, it's really fun from my standpoint as I'm kind of trained in neurosciences to see the some of the parallels with sleep and dreams and to see that we have a whole array yet to be discovered of uh, what play actually is doing to the brain itself. We've got some solid information, but it's just beginning. 
Well, and it seems it fits right into the the new focus on the mind-body connection, and not that it's a new knowledge, but maybe a new uh, focus mainstream. There was a study recently done, uh, I heard it on, on the news, about vets with post-traumatic stress, and they had put them in two groups, and one was focused with mindful by mindfulness and practicing mindfulness, and the other were doing sort of quote-unquote relaxing activities, but with no change in their mental state, no sort of conscious change on focus. And they found that the group that was studying mindfulness was far, far better off uh, six weeks down the road than those were doing just focusing on the the activities that were meant to be relaxing. Sure. Well, I think that the uh, some of the pioneers at the University of Wisconsin and elsewhere have done some excellent brain imaging studies, and there are some pioneering people in play research, uh, one of whom visited me over the weekend here, who are also beginning to demonstrate the uh, richness of brain changes that are specific, particularly in measurable animal play, to the states of play themselves with great uh, improvement in executive function and in uh, planning and in uh, memory fixation. So these are some uh, leading-edge elements of play research that are still confined primarily to the non-human laboratory-controlled animal studies. So let's talk a little bit more about the biology. You had said that we are built to play and built through play. You mentioned yep, the element of that is or probably many times. Um, you mentioned the element of that is a survival value, and you can see that by studying animals, that even when it can be risky behavior, they're still willing and choose to do it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I can talk sort of top-down or bottom-up. <clears throat> I'll start with top-down. Hopkins Marine Center here in uh, Monterey Bay, close to where I live, had some really good observers of baby seal and sea lion activities. And what they notice is that when the highly playful juvenile uh, sea lion or seals are out in the kelp and elsewhere, just as they leave their, their mother's protection and are playful and playing with each other, they're much more subject to predation by sharks and other uh, predators. And that if, if play was not significant because it increases the dangers of death and damage, uh, why is it more prevalent the smarter the animal and has persisted throughout evolutionary time? So that's kind of the top-down approach. The bottom-up approach would be what this fellow that visited me this weekend, Jacques Poncep, pioneered, which is, when infant rats are uh, just born, he takes the cerebral cortex and removes it from these infant rats surgically. They heal up, and you would think that without a cerebral cortex, these rats would be kind of little vegetables. But lo and behold, when they're four or five weeks old and old enough to begin to play, they not only play, they play in highly... Uh, intricate ways with the signals, the squeaks, and the other things, and wrestling and pinning that are a part of the rough-and-tumble play that's inherent to rats. And he's done these kinds of studies, as have some others since his original pioneering work, on other highly social mammals 
and those without a cerebral cortex are still wired by their survival circuits in the brainstem and limbic system to play intricately. So this locates the drive to play well within the survival circuits of the um, mammalian brain, are us included. So that the urge to play and the triggers which evoke play are uh, stem from these primal, very ancient circuits. Now there are a lot, there's a lot more to play than just these survival circuits, but it is a strong survival drive equivalent to sleep and dreams, to the immune system, to heart rate and breathing, and other of the hardwired survival circuits that have been around for hundreds of millions of years. It seems akin to that. I remember reading in your book that you talked about the mother-child attunement and the bonding and that that is focused around play and also an yeah, element I think of that, survival. I, that whole concept of attunement, attunement initially with one's own body and self and with the early maternal or caretaking uh, interaction and the innate joy as a part of those activities require that the child be safe, well-fed, and they, when they are attuned, to both their own body and the and the presence of a caretaker, mother or father, that is innately joyful and is the grounding base of play behavior. So that one needs to try, kind of understand that that attunement, whether it's with one's body, with one's friends, with one's learning environment, with the nature surrounding you, are really kind of continuity needs that human beings have had throughout our history, which can be suppressed, and we can survive without it, but it's not as much of a life if we don't play. And have you found, I was thinking about our culture with all the words you're using, joy and fun and play, and these things have been got all put in the box of frivolous. And have you run across any cultures through your research where they are more um, honoring of, of playing and the, the results from play? Well, I think there's a, a, a psychologist who's also expert in anthropology by the name of Peter Gray at Boston University who has analyzed as best he can the hunter-gatherer cultures, both historically and those rudiments that are left and he has found that within those cultures, which are largely sharing cultures, that the laughter and play that persists from childhood through old age and death accounts to about 20% of their active time. And that that's our fundamental heritage as humans, that we were foragers and hunter-gatherers for probably half a million or a million years, prior to the development of cities and language, written language and the like, and that that still remains kind of our core biology. So although it's difficult to find, and I'm not an anthropologist, so there may be some good knowledge that I just don't know about in terms of playful cultures, I think there are a, a variety of cultures that are much more tolerant and, and uh, 
foster play uh, than our own. You know, even if you look at Europe with the amount of vacation time and child care and things like that, they, they have, if not overtly uh, embraced play, they allow it to happen uh, more freely, I think, than in our uh, high-performance, over-regulated, helicopter parenting type of uh, culture. And so there's still hope for us, too. We're not going to go the way of the sea squirt and start eating our brains because we aren't using it. Um, and and you, I think you illustrate that in your PBS series that you produce, The Promise of Play. And, and um, maybe we could talk a little bit about what you found when you followed, um, I read a little bit about the, the girl you followed who then hadn't played much and what happened when she started playing. Well, that was a joyful little uh, experience. We went to the Muir School in San Francisco, and they had an interventional team there to try and uh, foster kids who were, were particularly isolated socially and perhaps intellectually and emotionally to help them along the path of education. And there was one little girl in particular who was very isolated on the playground and kind of tied her shoes and looked down, no but no friends, and was also acting out and had difficulty in class. So our camera crew, with the permission of her parents and the school, uh, filmed her over a period of months where there was an intervention by a really gifted uh, interventional teacher. And in the course of her uh, doing play therapy and beginning to, to be free to use her own play nature, she was transformed from this isolated, depressed, sad little girl into a, an exuberant player with hugging and accepted by her, her peers and, and teachers, such that when the final uh, camera crew pictured her on the playground, they and the rest of us were in tears. It was really very, very dramatic. And how long did that take? What, what was the about time three, frame? Three months, about, about three months. I think she was getting uh, four or five days a week involvement with the this fun, playful, uh, interventionalist expert, and uh, that, that turned the trick with her. And you, you mentioned for, for some of those of us, and I'm going to include myself in that group, sadly, who maybe have lost or forgotten our ability to sort of naturally play. That one thing we can do is identify our play personalities and that there are a variety of play personalities and that could be a part of the first step. What are the a few of the different play personalities? Well, earlier in the program I mentioned the little boy who on his own kind of liked objects and toys more than, uh, and they gave him more, innate glee and, and pleasure and, and interest than perhaps uh, interacting socially with other little kids or with his mother. Well, that kid's play personality may be a tinkerer, may be a collector, may be constructionalist. You can, uh, there are a number of ways of, of organizing it, but object play, which is a fundamental play pattern, was preferred by him, so his play personality would be more of an object player than uh, a social player. So within the kind of these non-scientific clusterings, you can find directors and explorers and 
collectors and jokers and and a variety of kind of, of archetypes that tend to be home base for uh, one or another person. This doesn't mean they're rigidly uh, rigid requirements for life because people do change in the course of a lifetime. You know, I'm a storyteller now, and I probably was more uh, director or explorer earlier in my life. So there are some some kinds of shifts, but I think if we all go back and back into those purest forms of playfulness that we can recall that are genuinely joyful and free, we usually can get a sense of what is the most workable kind of playfulness for us. And we're not all the same. So that uh, the unique play personalities appear and uh, if fostered and nourished in our lifetimes, tend to give us more empowerment and more fun. So if you've lost it, uh, and lots of us do in the course of our lives, our adult responsible, culturally imposed, uh, non-playful lives, if you've lost it, you can go back and back, I think, into those early, early patterns and usually retrieve some of those things that really, really worked well for you and then morph them into what would work similarly in adulthood now uh, to recapture your play nature. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm talking with Dr. Stuart Brown. We are talking about play. When we come back, we're going to be talking about what happens if you have lost it. Um, we'll start there when we come back. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Catch em. All right, we're back. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. We're talking about play. I'm here with Dr. Stuart Brown. And you just mentioned before we took a break about what happens that, you know, some of us stop playing. And I want to focus a little bit about that. When we stop playing, you said, when we stop playing, we start dying. And I think in that there were at all sorts of levels, you know, emotionally, physically, our immune system goes. What does life without play begin to look like? Well, I think it depends on how severe it is and also whether or not an individual who's lost their play once had a pretty sound grounding in play behavior, healthy childhood play, for example. Because there are very great differences. In Whitman's case, the Texas Tower murderer, because he'd never had this kind of authentic self with a sense of purpose and meaning from within that play produces, he was a kind of a false shell of a person who, whose deep emotional life was uh, not organized into very many deep rewards for him. So that the serious play deprivation and the presence of a privately experienced depression are really, uh, they, run, they go hand in glove. The, that doesn't mean that every adult who doesn't play much is going to be seriously depressed. But if you don't uh, experience the mood elevation and the freedom from playfulness as an adult, there are some kind of obvious, to me at least, uh, consequences. The mild ones would be a lack of optimism and a kind of a sense you're putting one foot in front of the other and that your life and, and the trajectory of your life doesn't seem to uh, 
uh, offer you much hope and joy for the future. You you doesn't mean you aren't conscientious and effective, but it means that the buoyancy of life that is offered by the mood elevation and the experience of play is missing. The more uh, prolonged adult play deprivations are usually associated with things like uh, rigidity in thinking, the uh, unambiguous world where uh, you feel like you your position in the world is correct and everybody else's, unless they align with yours, aren't correct, is, to my way of thinking, part of the inflexibility and rigidity of thought that is is a consequence of the play play lacking serious play lacking life, and uh, you know the, the rigidity of thinking, smoldering depression, uh, lack of optimism, uh, not much interest in novelty and in exploration, reactivity to uh, and kind of let's say uh, if you're play deprived and you're driving your car in Los Angeles or some other place, not Ketchum, of course, some other place that's clogged with traffic and some jerk cuts you off with a pickup truck and then gives you the finger, if you're play saturated, you probably say, yeah, what a jerk, you know, let him go. And you're, you're much more able to handle that kind of stressful circumstances, where if you're seriously play deprived and your life hasn't had a lot of sense of immediate reward and meaning, you tend to want to have vengeance on that uh, road rage producing idiot. And I think, you know, that's a kind of a crude example. But I think the ability to be tolerant and resilient and uh, not reactive to uh, life stresses that are really part of the boon and the benefit that a healthy play life provides. I thought it was so interesting when you talked a little bit about uh, intimate relationships and that you felt that without play it was impossible to sustain the emotional intimacy, but also the physical element that novelty boosts the dopamine levels. And you mentioned that just again about the novelty element of play and that actually is having a physiological effect on our bodies that then will in turn affect our behaviors and our decisions. Yeah, I think one of the uh, pioneers and a play scholar by the name of Mark Beckhoff taught me that uh, from his in-depth study of systematic study of play and coyotes and penguins and dogs and others was that play fosters exploration of the possible and preparation for the unexpected. So if you have a sense of uh, solidarity in your play nature, and let's say you are involved in a marriage or in a sustaining, long, intimate relationship, uh, the infusion of the possible, the infusion of novelty, and the sharing of that exploration with mutual respect usually allows a deepening of the intimacy and uh, also kind of more fun than just going through the motions again and again and again. And I thought, too, it was was um, encouraging that just 
physically playing or physical activity, because physical activity is so innately connected with play, that just going outside and jumping around or playing with the dog, something can, jumping in the leaves, that that can then bypass, you mentioned the cognitive roadblocks and start beginning to build new neural pathways to happiness. I know you had done some research with some women and found just physical activity alone helped to solve a lot of other problems and issues they've been having in their lives. Absolutely correct. You know, what Bob Fagan, also one of the advisors of the National Institute for Play, says is that movement fills an empty heart. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a gross generalization. But, you know, if you're having a really bad day and you take a walk in the woods, and certainly where you live, it's a beautiful area, to get outside and kind of get outside yourself and are just in it with nature and you're moving, you're going to feel better. And that isn't necessarily getting you into a full state of play, but I think it is novelty, it's exploration, it's multiple sensory input, all of which are part of what go on in playfulness. So let's talk a little bit about our societal deficit of play. I saw that uh, Charlie Hone, who wrote a book called Play It Away, had written an article about playing and and what that does to cure anxiety. And it had mentioned that there had been a hundred, one million people who had read his article, and the way that they had found it was through a Google search on how to cure anxiety. So that is a lot of people out there it looking to, to cure anxiety. Um, what do you think that says about our relationship to, to play? Well, I think the uh, the presence of I've been teaching at Stanford for 20 years, and the presence of anxiety states and high-performing uh, leaders, supposedly, who are admitted to Stanford, has gone up in that 20 years. And I think the level of free play in their own heritage has gone down. So I think those are there are some linkages. Whether or not they're scientifically verifiable, I don't know. But I think the, you know, if you engage in that state of play that we talked about, talked around and talked about, uh, you're going to have a shift physiologically into uh, being present in the moment. And, and anxiety is usually uh, attempting to control the future and a feeling of powerlessness uh, in one's own self. Play, when you experience it, without it being a cognitive sense of empowerment, is the experience of empowerment, and that tends to diminish both depression and anxiety. And do you have any thoughts on how to, for people who maybe haven't been playing much lately, to get the cognitive element of the critic and the judgment and where it becomes a competition or they aren't doing it well um, or not as good as the other person, where there's sort of that leap from being in your head to being actually in the, the atmosphere of play, the experience of true play. That's a tough one because the cognitive, uh, cognitive I don't know exactly what to say, but let's say the cog- cognitive bondage in our culture is really intense, and it's also rewarded. So if you are are going to get out of that con- cognitive uh, bondage, 
you usually feel like you're nonsensical or purposeless, and with that comes what we talked about earlier, a sense of guilt or shame or a feeling you're not being useful. So that's a highly individual process that I think should be and could be uh, a priority for personal public, personal and public health. There's no simple, easy answer how to get out of your head. Rhythm and music tend to be a really good uh, antidote. Uh, physical immersion in activity, uh, particularly if it is fits your own personal style, is also important. But there are, you know, there are introverted, shy people for whom uh, an, an imaginative fantasy is as much play as uh, skiing deep powder is for the physical person. So not, it's not all the same same trajectory. So let's talk about imaginative play a little bit. I, I'm having a, a whole conversation in my head about a number of things that you said, because I'm like, oh, they all link together. You, know, you mentioned the authentic self, and I, I've had in, in the last few years a lot of interviews where the importance of, of the authentic self comes into play and finding work that's rich and rewarding for someone um, with teenagers and adolescents who have lost and never created a sense of authentic self and are not only have anxiety but are um, self-mutilating and at suicide risk. And so I want to talk a little bit about the balance in parenting between creating a structure that's safe and then having a world of, of freedom where there can be exploration and rough-and-tumble play? Well, this is a really, uh, really important question. And, you know, if you've been measured and managed by parents, by school, so that grades rather than learning, performance rather than joy, uh, outcome rather than the experience itself, is how you judge both yourself and your culture is surrounds you, it's very tough to then say my life has authenticity, meaning, and purpose, even if you're, you know, you're valedictorian or honor student or making a lot of money later in uh, Silicon Valley. So uh, to me, the, you know, there is no easy answer to this, but the idea that parents, identify from within their own child's free choices what it is that produces joyfulness and a sense of empowerment from within those intrinsic values that are exhibited by all children if you give them a chance and that there's a nourishment of those patterns that really is kind of the essence of parental love so that the child's natural abilities and joyfulness are given room to happen. And that this, you know, for example, if this carries over into the school, the, the joyfulness of a teacher being able to use their own play personality to get across the uh, pedantry that they need to get into the school allows a role modeling for this play empowerment to continue through education so that the learning itself becomes fun rather than than the uh, uh, the grade itself being the index of whether you're successful. 
So I don't, this is a long-winded answer to your question. Oh, well, no, because it's a big question. I've given, a lot, the idea. I've, given, yeah. I've given it a lot of thought, and, and I think a historian that I've had a lot of uh, contact with uh, over time has said that, you know, we've, we're leading away from a industrial productive era into an era where purpose and meaning become the core value of the culture, and we're not there yet. But I think that, that, that there's some real wisdom in that long historic perspective. And when, uh, for example, the, the students at Stanford that have been teaching for 20 years find from within themselves what works for them. What, uh, they're less enamored of, of having to jump into Silicon Valley and make a billion uh, and more satisfied even if some of what they're doing is artisan or is not economically as productive and, and uh, lucrative as uh, and it might be, but they have better lives. And I think that the, uh, now to me, the in inclusion of place science into our culture is a deep and enduring necessity. Take a look at the current presidential uh, morass, and I think we see rather than uh, purpose and meaning, we see competition and putting down others and and trying to be one up, which is non, which is sort of refuting the adaptive capabilities that having both play and purpose produce. But you're getting me onto my, uh, you know, my soapbox. On your soapbox, it's a good place to be because it's a practical, <laughs> it. a practical point of view. You know, we look at society and for the individual, and also for our nation and for the world, but going forward, we aren't knowledge-based. The future is about creativity and innovation. And yet when you look at education and parenting and you bring in this idea of play, and, and you talked about people, teachers bringing in their play personality, you know, people will say, oh, you know, coddling and wasting time and touchy-feely and all these things. And yet science has proven a long time ago that more synapses when, when children are in preschool and, and Kindergarten, I'm sure they'll prove until we're through, through adulthood, more synapses fire and connections are made through play than anything else. And I, I just, when my kids were in school, I just kept banging my head thinking, I don't get it. The science has shown this, and yet the schools aren't embracing it because it somehow looks, I don't know if, if weak is the right word, uh, but not serious enough. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Jacques Pong's up this pioneering researcher who was with me this weekend, we got into a discussion. We don't have a, a clear answer as to why the uh, good science and the outcome uh, of, for innovation and adaptability, personal resiliency, stress management, diminishment of depression, the things that seem to beset our culture, many of which can be mollified by healthy play, haven't taken hold, but you know the educational establishment. Uh, it it is very wary of this, with some wonderful exceptions. And the uh, there are pockets where this kind of uh, atmosphere uh, in in the industrial areas of 
productivity allow play to take place, but they, it's the exception rather than the rule. And even, let's say, these highly uh, lucrative Silicon Valley companies, they claim to be very playful, but the close analysis of the individuals working there, sure, some of them are very playful, but many of them are 24-7. They get their cleaning done. They eat their food. They stay there late at night. They're, played, they're sleep deprived and, to my way of thinking, goal-oriented and, and play deprived, despite the, uh, you know, the veneer of being a playful corporation. So it's tough to, uh, to get this truth or series of truths felt and uh, transmitted into uh, being a cultural priority. I think you have the hashtag. I saw in your book, one of your chapters, it said the opposite of play is not work. And I thought, okay, that's a good launching pad for the, the new yeah. revolution. And there are certainly a lot of respected people out there on all angles of the revolution. You know, we've got Daniel Pink, who's set a number of books writing about drive and right brain right. will rule the world. And uh, Robinson finding our, Sir Ken Robinson finding our element and David Elkind, The Power of Play and the importance of that in education and work and parenting and the corporate world and also in, in our global relationships. I know you mentioned sure. that play lowers levels of violence and increases communication and fosters innovation. And really also uh, fosters empathy so that you've got tolerance and empathy that are part of an outcome of the highly play-saturated life. And, and what would you say, I know you devoted some um, parts of chapters to it in your book about the what people would say maybe is the um, scary side of play or the negative side of play. And a lot of that you clarified was first misinterpretation of what is actually play and some things are misidentified. But the reality, at least in parenting, that you know, someone's probably going to get hurt. You know, parents say, oh, someone's going to get hurt. And they probably are. But no you doubt about it. If, balance, you play, right? if you play actively, like the sea lions, you're going to be at risk for injury. And that part of the inherent risk of living that uh, is less risky, in my view, than if you don't play. But, uh, you know, and also has, has some value to it in and of itself, right? Of, determining where boundaries are and when we've gone too far right. and that we can hurt ourselves and get back up and keep on going. And, and there is a kind of, a, if, it's, if healthy play is allowed from, let's say, as soon as you're able to walk as a little toddler, there is a kind of a risk assessment that's learned. Uh, you don't climb up a slide that you're going to fall off of when you're 18 months old unless you've never been out and seen a slide. If you've been seen a slide and you've been out, you begin to have a kind of a wariness for things you can't do. And the nice thing about play is you usually try uh, gradually to improve your mastery, and there is a drive toward expiration and, and increased risk, but it's not, you don't go immediately to the top of the slide and fall off if you're two years old. Uh, and, and that's not generally known. If a kid has not had any uh, desensitization to what play is, then 
they often don't have the play language that their body and their socialization would otherwise have taught them, and they are uh, their clutches. They don't handle the normal play very well. And these are overprotected kids who are suddenly put into a rough-and-tumble situation, can't handle it. And, you know, they either push the other kids down or they get bullied because they the languages of play have not been learned. I mean, play is, a, is as intricate a way of learning as uh, language and other kind of reading and writing. I mean, it, it's not something that, that happens without exposure. And a lot of our uh, preschools and others don't expose kids to their normal play trajectories. And a lot probably comes from our, not new anymore, but fascination and of, of uh, not wanting to take responsibility in lawsuits. It's become sort of a controlled society. Um, and, and so we don't want to have any risk. Yep. So uh, we just have a couple minutes, and I'm thinking we have a prime example in our midst and on our television sets and radio right now in Donald Trump in that you might look at him and say, all right, he's really being, running a creative and innovative campaign, and he might look like he's having fun and playing at times, but behind it is definitely a lack of empathy and some bullying and maybe taking teasing too far. Um, what do you think about Trump's relationship to play? You know, I, I, uh, I'm certainly not a Trump expert, but whenever I, I see a kind of a egomania and narcissism that appears to be the driving force and that that is, leads ultimately to domination, even if the domination is sort of pseudo-playful, uh, I find that that's, you know, that's the profile of someone who is not truly deeply playful because the highly playful people probably aren't drawn to politics or are becoming billionaires, but the highly playful people have empathy for the other. And what you see in Lion Ted or uh, Little Marco or, you know, whatever the, the put-down is, is a kind of a cruelty that to me is not does not indicate that there is an empathic human being uh, behind those statements. I don't know him, so I don't, you know, it's always dangerous for a psychiatrist to uh, opine on this. And when Goldwater was first running for the president, some psychiatrists gave very negative profiles of him, and he ended up getting a lot of money for these guys being irresponsible. So I don't know Trump. And I, all I know is the public profiling, and it troubles me deeply uh, what I see in the public profiling. And you had said when enough people raise play to the status it deserves in our lives, we will find the world a better place. And you have developed the National Institute for Play. Is that the mission of the Institute? That's the mission. I think the mission is to bring the essential nature of play and its benefits as much as possible from a very small nonprofit organization into uh, public life. That's why we did the Promise of Play series. We've got a uh, online a uh, encyclopedia of play science in which we're trying to establish the boundaries of play scientifically so that these can be defined. And I certainly, like our discussion today, 
I continue to advocate as much as possible, bringing what I hope is credible, uh, credible information about play into form. And fortunately, I've got the help of some really distinguished scholars and play uh, play individuals that have helped me along the way. And do you think with the development of uh, neuroscience that the study of play has gained some credibility? I know I read about a, a scientist in your book, a woman who said, you know, not only am I a woman scientist, but I'm studying play, so that takes me down another notch. Has that changed, do you feel? Are there more doors open? Are there less smirks in the room? You know, I think the... Uh, the answer is the there is a I think a wave of uh, enthusiasm and awareness about play that's growing, but in terms of funding for the kind of basic research that goes on in heart disease and cancer uh, and maybe even autism, the uh, the the play scholars are really uh, almost all self-funded or very very. Uh, much at the bottom of the barrel as far as uh, research funds are concerned. So that that's in part why I established the National Institute for Play because there wasn't a really good funded play science center. And I, you know, I hope since I'm in my 80s, I do hope that uh, the National Institute for Play can persist uh, in some form, potentially corporate or institutionally funded, beyond my lifetime because I think it's necessary and really important. So that's part of what we're about these days. Well, we're all beholden to you, and I know that's often the road of a pioneer. And, and uh, stick around just a little longer until you'll see the, the, the <laughs> Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to enjoy my life and to uh, live in a beautiful place, and, and uh, that helps. Well, thank you As so much. As do interviews like this, this is very affirming to have these have someone as enlightened as you about play question me. So it's been very, very enjoyable from this end. Well, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Mm -hmm.